Hi y'all, it's Kayla Jackson from Round Rock, Arizona. Welcome to the Creative Cowboy Podcast. Today we are talking about the creative economy on the Navajo Nation. The creative economy it encompasses all of cultural goods that is sold here on the Navajo Nation. It could be silversmithing, rug weaving, your local food vendor, to your leather makers, to everything in the realms of the cultural goods. And here on the Navajo Nation, we have a vast variety of that sort. And people have been selling their cultural goods to people around the world for generations and generations. And today we have a world-renowned metalsmith and jeweler, Shane Hendren, a good friend of mine, I might add. He's the only four-time artist of the year. He has served on the Indian and Arts and Crafts Association. He is an outstanding father, a cowboy at heart, and today he will talk about the creative economy and what the creative economy means to him. So Shane, what is the creative economy to you? Um, I guess if you're referring to the creative economy more like uh, the art business is kind of how I'm taking it because uh, that's what I do. So, I mean, when you talk about the creative economy, it's really multifaceted, though, because it's, a, it's, a, it's like any other economic entity. Um, it's a spider web, if you will, that ultimately ends with the collector. So your, your collectors are the people that are going to purchase whatever it is that you make. And in order for them to have something to collect, something that they want to keep, um, an artist has to create something. And in order for an artist to do that, they have to have supplies and materials and stuff. So then there's suppliers and everything involved. Um, a lot of times artists, um, even though they're, they're naturally creative, they don't understand um, the process, so many artists find themselves in art school. So there's another branch of the creative economy, is the education system. And then, uh, and now in this day and age, you have a lot of uh, seminars and, and uh, training opportunities, like um, different short-term classes and things, just to learn different techniques and stuff, depending on what you're, what you're uh, wanting to know. So the creative economy is like this really multifaceted, expansive thing. It's, you know, it's an organism of its own. But at the end of the day, it all ends with the collector. Because the collector is the one that, their demand for what you're making is what puts food in your refrigerator. So it's, uh, and, and it's kind of tricky too, because uh, when I started out, I don't know if you want to know the background stuff, but, but when I started out, um, I didn't start out to be a jeweler and that's what I've been doing now for 30 years is primarily making jewelry. Um, as a kid growing up, I, uh, I was around art my whole life. My, uh, my, my mom is from the Navajo reservation and as a small child, we lived on the reservation and, um, my dad traded on the reservation and everything. And, and I can remember uh, as a kid, you know, guys would come <clears throat> knock on my parents' door and, uh, you know, they'd have paintings or jewelry or whatever that they wanted to sell to my dad. A lot of them were cowboys, you know, so they could make entry fees or gas money or whatever. And, um, and he would buy them. And then he would turn around 
and take these things that he bought from these guys and uh, go to like uh, the Grand Canyon for example and resell it to the gift shop there and then they would they would sell it or he would come to Santa Fe and you know go to different galleries and and sell the artwork to to the galleries so he was like he was a middleman in the process and so what that taught me as a young child was I didn't want to be one of those guys because they were the epitome of starving artists they uh, you know when I look back on it I feel like a lot of them they probably didn't hardly cover the cost of their materials they damn sure didn't cover the, their time you know with what they were selling stuff for because they were selling work to my dad at a price point that was low enough that he could resell it to another middleman so everybody's making a profit as this thing before this thing finally gets to the collector and uh, where they pay the ultimate price and uh, I think a lot of these guys the other thing back then that I saw was they were totally unaware of where their art went you know they they didn't realize that what they were making was going out there into the great big world and it might end up in Europe or Asia or you know they were just they had this innate ability to draw or paint or make jewelry or whatever and they produce something and that's as far as it goes that's as far as their thought process goes is they have an idea they make something and then that's it I'm gonna sell it and turn it into food or gasoline or whatever I happen to need so seeing seeing that growing up I really understood from a very early age that art was a business that that you that you uh, you could feed your family with it because my dad you know he definitely was supplementing his income by buying and selling art and uh, my grandmother on my mom's side uh, Martha Holy on Charlie she's a weaver so I saw that side of it as well you know she raised uh, she raised sheep so that she could shear them so that she could you know process the wool to weave her to weave her tapestries so you had this entire um, to get one it used to amaze me because I used to think about this to get this one rug you had to have 50 head of sheep that you raised all year and you shear them one time and then me and my brothers were there were her labor mm -hmm. so we were her shears and then we'd sit there and comb and you know we'd card through all the wool and pick all the dirt out and we'd wash it and, and then my grandmother would you know she'd take us on these walks and we'd be picking different herbs and stuff and she would you know say okay well this one makes this color and this one makes this color because she only did um, what's called a chinley style mm -hmm. rug so it has no borders and only used natural dyes she never used unless it was an order she would do it if it was an order she would use processed dyes but but in the ones that she wove for her own creativity they were all natural dyes so then we would have to you know boil everything and turn the dyes into into liquid and put the wool in it and you had to make sure that you had enough wool that it was going to be enough for a rug because you, you you can see some rugs you know you ran out of wool so they do, do another dyeing and then it doesn't match <laughs> they're like three different colors but you know it's one of them kind of supply and demand deals but so that was a whole nother perfect illustration of this creative economy mm -hmm. because my grandmother you know I've never been a fan of mutton 
I mean, I can't say that it's... I, I know a lot of people like it. I'm not I'm not a big fan. But, um, you know, so she was raising these sheep. Her purpose was for their wool. That's, that's why she... Cause, because she didn't like to go to town and pay the traders what they wanted for wool because she felt like they were ripping her off because she, she knew the whole process. So she knew, I guess... I guess in a way she probably felt like they were getting over on her. So she much preferred to do all of her own stuff. So anybody who has one of her rugs is pretty, pretty lucky because they're all old school. But that, her need to be creative caused her to have to have the sheet, which meant, you know, there was a whole different industry, you know, it overlapped with agriculture and, uh, and my grandfather raised cattle and he had a, he had a, produce farm there at Valley Store, Arizona. So it was uh, it was all overlapped and intertwined. Mm-hmm. So for me, the creative economy is uh, whatever you got to do to make a dollar. How impactful is the creative economy on the Navajo Nation? I feel like we kind of already addressed that, but how? what other ways do you think they're going to like sustain themselves this day and age? This is, um, <clears throat> this is actually an excellent question. Because uh, once again, going back to my childhood, um, everybody talks about unemployment on the reservation being 70-some percent and everything. Mm -hmm. Well, when I was a kid, it was probably even higher than that because there just weren't any jobs at all. But everybody had what they needed. But the reason why they had what they needed is because everybody was a straight-up hustler is how I like to refer to them. They did what had to be done. And so if somebody needed a house built, they didn't go hire a contractor or whatever. You know, they got their cousins, their brothers, their uncles, you know, and and they might not work for straight up cash. They might trade it out for a cow or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I can remember when I was a kid, there used to be this old man that walked around the Chinle Valley mm-hmm. and sharpened your tools. He did not own a car. And and he was kind of like a hobo. He had all these different sharpening stones and files and, and different things, all hand tools. And um, back then, more people walked when I was a kid. And so my Che could tell by the way he walked, he's like, oh, there's so-and-so, the guy that sharpens my tools. And so before he would get there, he would have all of his hoes and shovels and whatever he wanted him to sharpen axes all gathered up and so this guy would get there and the first thing my my great-grandparents were still alive then the first thing my great-grandmother would do is feed him mm-hmm. and then uh, because back in that day at least the way I was raised is if you go to somebody's house you feed them nobody should go away from you hungry and um, so the first thing she would do is feed him and then and then you know they would talk because he walked around you know he had the gossip Mm-hmm. And so that that went along with the food, you know, you got the lowdown <laughs> on what the neighbors were doing and you know who had a baby and you know who ran away and whatever was going on, that's that's how you got the news. That was the that was the internet, you know, yeah. whenever somebody visited you. Reservation news. <laughs> yeah. So and uh so that part had had to go down and everything. And then and then he'd start doing his deal. He'd start mm-hmm. sharpening the tools and everything and if there was a lot of them he might not 
be done by the end of the day. So he just stayed there. And then he got fed again. <laughs> and in the morning, he got fed again. And, you know, this guy sometimes would be there for two or three days sharpening tools mm -hmm. before he, you know, my great grandmother would give him food and he'd go walking off to the next yeah. potential customer, if you will. And I always used to think that was the coolest thing because uh, I did. I always, and actually now that I think about it, I wonder, I wonder if he even had a home. I mean, because yeah. he just he just went from place to place. I mean, I'm sure he did. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there was somewhere he wintered, you know. <laughs> but uh, but sometimes like uh, like my Che, if if this guy came like in the fall when it was during harvest time. Yeah, he would pay him cash, but he would also give him as much food as he could carry or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and I remember um, they they put it in these uh, in these boxes and everything. And sometimes my Che would drive him somewhere because they had so much food he couldn't walk off with it. Mm -hmm. But um, but that was the same kind of thing. Is like like my. My Che at the time when I was a kid, he used to build hogans for people. If people wanted a traditional hogan built, they would come to him mm -hmm. because he knew how to cut the logs and everything interlaced. So when we were kids growing up, we would we would work on that stuff. <clears throat> and uh, it was the same kind of deal. Whoever you were doing it for, they fed you and everything. And I'm sure my Che got paid money, but but at the same time, you know, there was a lot of it was a lot of you have this and I need it, so we'll just we'll trade it out you know and and it was a it was a very good deal and the art worked the same way mm -hmm. you know i saw the same kind of thing happen as far as the art world was concerned but art also gave people um the ability to get cash money because they could take whatever they made off the reservation and uh and sell it to the traders or even on reservation traders and get cash money mm -hmm. because we were becoming more and more of a of a money economy on the reservation people needed money to buy clothes and whatnot and everything and uh, so art was a good way to f to supplement that mm -hmm. it was a good way to get uh, cash in your pocket and uh, it's changed a lot because when I was a kid especially like with jewelry and stuff nobody cared who made it like the, the traders and everything, they didn't care who made it. Mm -hmm. They just, they cared about how much it weighed, how nice the stones were in it, that kind of thing. That's how it was dealt with more based on the commodity basis of how much the silver was and, and how much the turquoise was, that kind of thing. Whereas uh, within my lifetime, what I've seen change towards the end of the 60s and definitely into the 70s, um, artists became named you began to see you know they started using their own stamps they started getting recognition you know rc gorman was uh, i mean like in a way rc gorman was like a hero to me hmm. because here's this guy from chinley arizona and you know because of his art mm -hmm. he becomes this world-renowned multi-millionaire you know multiple houses wearing italian suits you know and drinking with celebrities yeah and he was and he was like uh i don't know how to explain it because my mom knew him and his dad mm. and so growing up 
<clears throat> they're just these people you know. Yeah. But then as I got older, I realized this guy is like, he's like our Elton John. Yeah, you know? he was. He did act I mean, like him too. I mean, he was. He was, <laughs> blow blow your mind, you know? Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I would see these articles in magazines and, mm-hmm. and all this stuff, and it was like, it really, you know, R.C. Gorman really had a huge impact on me in that he wasn't afraid to just put it out there, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and it was like, he put it out there and it was like, pay me. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no, I'm going to give you this, and you know, or, or no, you know, because I'm an Indian, I'm going to give you a deal. Yeah. It was, you know, I know who I am. I know where I come from. My now value. pay me. Yeah. I, yeah. He knew he had value. Yeah. And he was like one of the first native artists that I saw that with, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as a Navajo, and honestly and truly, when you think about it, he was one of the first famous native artists. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody knew R.C. Gorman. I mean, there's Alan Hauser, but he wasn't as impactful Alan, as R.C. You know, I love Alan, and I yeah. knew Alan too. Yeah. And and he was a great man, but he didn't have the panache mm. that R.C. Gorman had. And R. C., the other thing, like I said, the other thing about R.C. Gorman is it was all about pay up, sucker. <laughs> Give me the money. Yeah. You know, he... He wasn't going to do it for free, you know, and, and I admire that because I think, I think it's, uh, you know, staying, trying to get back on this idea of, uh, tribal economies. I think when you grow up like I did, where you worked all the time just to subsist, just to survive, Mm -hmm. you, you don't realize that you're your skills have a greater value. It nobody tells you because growing up the way I did, trading for work and everything, you didn't you didn't understand that what you were doing might be worth a hundred dollars an hour or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it it was worth whatever you agreed on. So not until we moved off the reservation did I begin to understand. Wow, they're ripping those people off. Yeah. And and that's really how I saw it because it was like I know how much time and energy went into that and now I know that quote unquote minimum wage is $7.50 an hour or whatever mm-hmm. and I'm thinking to myself, well, this person put X number of hours into that and the materials cost this much and you're paying that much. It don't take a genius to figure out that math is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so it really used to irritate me. It it still gets under my skin, still bugs me because the thing that bugs me more, though, is is when the artists accept it, when they take it. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, I understand that some of them, you know, that's that's the difference between eating or not, mm-hmm. or getting home or whatever. Yeah. But that's a whole nother psychological thing that needs to be addressed <laughs> by somebody else. I'm an amateur psychologist, and you get what you pay for, and it's free. <laughs> so, but no, the, the economy on the reservation in my experience, um, was always bolstered by art. It was always supported. Nobody ever formally recognized it, I would say. Yeah. But how many other tribes created an economic entity like Navajo Arts and Crafts Enterprises unless they recognized that it had value? 
that's the reason why Navajo, uh, Navajo Arts and Crafts Enterprises exists. Mm -hmm. And it has all these different locations because it supported the artists, but it also bought their wares. And then the tribe, through their marketing, got it out into the world. So, you know, back, back, uh, back in the day, I really had a lot of admiration for that and the way it worked because, mm -hmm. you know, you go to a lot of other tribes and they don't recognize their, their artisans in any way. Yeah. And, and, I mean, the Navajo tribe doesn't recognize us the way other tribes do, too. I mean, some tribes sponsor their, their artists, mm -hmm. but... But as a kid growing up, I couldn't deny the fact that artists had value. Even the tribe saw that. They established an entire business for it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's still that way. I, I know a lot of people that art is their, is their uh, primary means of making money. Only now, in my opinion, it's easier because, you know, we live in a digital age. Mm -hmm problem is on the reservation they don't have access to internet like everywhere else <laughs> yeah so it's uh you're riding a three-legged horse sometimes 